It's always good to be with you in our worship service and especially to take our Bibles and work our way through God's Word, His very precious Word, so precious to us. And I'm glad that we could spend time singing about it and praying over it and reading from it this morning in our scripture reading. And now we have the the delight of turning and uh, examining a very uh, small portion, but a very profound one. I'd ask if you take your Bibles and turn or find your way to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 39. I want to say that uh, <clears throat> by way of introduction, we we bring our study on safekeeping faith to an end this morning. We started started the series with three timely admonitions to faith, hope, and love, and then took to heart the sober warnings to beware the way of the apostate and instead to choose Christ. And we talked about safekeeping faith in all its facets. We come now to the last part of this, incentives for an aggressive faith. But before we look at them, I want to set the stage by addressing first the opposite of safe-keeping safe faith. Uh, we call it shrinking back from our confession um, or living with timidity instead of temerity. That is, with shyness and doubting rather than with an overabundance of confidence. Uh, maybe an illustration of this from a true account from church history will help. During the Reformation, when God raised men up who stood their ground for biblical truth, there were a few here and there who stood with them, but then recanted. It's a rather uh, technical term, recanted. That is that they went back on their word as champions of orthodoxy and instead embraced once again the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. One such man was Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was Oxford trained, and he was chosen for the Archbishopric by King Henry VIII, no less. Henry was desperate, you see, to have a male heir. And his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, gave him only a girl. That wouldn't do. Uh, they didn't know, of course, back then that uh, the male determines the sex of a child. Oh, well. Uh, now the king was in a bit of a bind, and he wanted to divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. But the Catholic Church, which was the state church at the time, condemned divorce. Now, Cranmer was a theologian. He was actually able to argue that the king's marriage was illegitimate because Catherine was Henry's brother's wife. Roman Catholic Church still didn't buy it, but Henry went with it, divorced Catherine, married Anne, and established Protestantism as the new state church. Protestantism, by the way, was already in existence. The Reformation had already begun by this time. Cranmer was sympathetic also to the Reformation, and when Henry's male heir, Edward VI, became king, who was also a proponent of the Reformation, Cramer wrote more freely against many of the Roman Catholic practices. He didn't write so freely when Henry was around because Henry, even though he, he established Protestantism as the state church, was still Catholic. 
But Cranmer would write against transubstantiation, clerical celibacy, the role of images in worship, the veneration of saints, rather bold things back then for him to do. Now fast forward to the end of the Edwardian monarchy and enter Mary I, a.k.a. Bloody Mary. She was a staunch Roman Catholic and persecuted the reformers, killing over 300 of them. And as you might expect, she greatly disliked Cranmer. Now, it wasn't just because he was a reformer. Remember Catherine of Aragon, that Henry divorced with Cranmer's help? Yeah, she was banished from the kingdom, and then she later died in obscurity from cancer, but not without leaving Henry an heiress. Guess who that was? Right, little Mary. She was now grown up, and she was a queen with an attitude. She carried a personal vendetta for Cranmer, for what he did to his, her mother, and eventually had him burned at the stake. What you need to know is that while Cranmer was in prison in the tower for over two years, the Roman Catholic bishops were able to persuade him to recant of all that he wrote against the Catholic Church with a false promise, of course, that he would be spared from the flames. Sadly, he did recant. And they had him sign a document to that effect, and it was published for all to see. Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, writes, quote, At last the archbishop, being overcome, gave his hand, end quote. That means he gave his consent and signed on the dotted line. Recant. Depart from orthodoxy. Call it what you will. It's the way of the apostate. And true Christians can head in that direction, although, of course, not ever fully down that road. We know that Peter took the way of the apostate when he rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to go to the cross. And later when he denied Jesus three times with cursings and oaths. But Peter was no apostate. Later actually went on to champion the faith, right? He was no Judas. And when Christians, babes or mature, head in the way of the apostate, we need to alert them. We need to call them out, show them that that is not the right way for God's people to ever take, for it ultimately leads to death. It's not our way. It's not the way of life. It's the way of death. It's, it's narrow, not broad. It leads to heaven, not hell. As part of our ministry to call wayward believers back, even ourselves at times back, or unbelievers on the verge of believing but are then reconsidering, we need to use incentives, God-given biblical incentives. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning from Hebrews 10. This is the third section that we are dealing with, incentives for safekeeping your faith, verses 32 to 39. Now let's be clear of one thing. What the writer gives to the Christians are incentives to keep their faith strong and vibrant. They're not ways to keep from losing their saved status. A Christian can no more lose his salvation by what he does than an unbeliever can obtain it by what he does. Salvation is not by works. It is by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. And that's the banner that the reformers ran up the flagpole 
and died for. God gives it, and it can never be lost. If someone claimed once to have been a Christian and denounced the faith, either by having nothing more to do with it or by recreating a new brand of Christianity to suit his lifestyle, we know that person was never a true believer to begin with. And yet, knowing this, we nevertheless still find it astounding when it happens to people, especially to those famous Christian personalities, or, or to someone that we never expected. True believers cannot fall away. But they can become lazy. They can become discouraged. They can drift. Of course, Christians never have a right to any of those things, by the way. You say, but all Christians experience these things to some degree. Some get lazy, some are discouraged, some drift. We all, to some degree. Yes, Christians do, but I'm saying that they don't have to. They don't have to. These things might be usual for Christians in America, but they are not normal. There's a difference between usual and normal. Sin is usual. It isn't normal. Normal is the aggressive, obedient living. You see, normal is to be like Christ, right? Are we called to be like Christ? That's, that's the norm for human beings. Besides, if it's true that we overcome our laziness or depression or drifting by applying God's word, then if we knew how to do that in the first place, we would never have suffered these things in the first place. I believe that the church has gotten to the point, beloved, where it tells itself that, that usual is normal and that we should not expect to be, uh, that we should expect rather to be lazy and depressed and adrift. And that's okay if we are because, well, it happens to everybody to some, to some degree or other. It also goes on to say that if it happens, we're not responsible. I'm not making this up. <clears throat> I actually wrote on this very subject a few years back in a book called Whole Counsel. I want to quote something I said there. Quote, the church has been influenced by a culture that places as a matter of course an individual's responsibility to live healthy, wisely, peacefully, and lawfully on something else. Illness, environment, miserable people, job, government, and so on. Blame-shifting is epidemic. American Christianity has adopted and sanctified a version of this secular ideology and promotes it tenaciously. Groupthink has finally become churchthink, which not only sees no place for individual responsibility to win over temptation and sin, but fiercely discourages it in many different ways. You can't do it all. And you can't do anything, in fact, in the Christian life. It's all of grace. If you try, you're operating on your own strength. God's love will carry you through. It's okay if you get depressed. You're only human. Don't worry if you lose those daily battles. You've already won the war. And they go on and on and on. These misconceptions fuel a laissez-faire approach to the Christian walk. Veteran biblical counselors can vouch for the fallout from such a harmful stance, counselees continue to wane in their faith, sometimes shipwrecking. Why else would the biblical counseling movement be thriving? Oh, there is plenty of demand. The fashionable exterior of the believer who is, want, uh, who, who is 
who is wanting in his biblical view of responsibility may be bright and cheery, but his inner man is fragile and cannot keep from cracking under pressure. We really need to resurrect the biblical principle of winning, but I think it's a hard sell today. Few Christians think of themselves in terms of this militant posture. Most would find the notion of conquering burdensome and our responsibility to win overwhelming. The Americanized Christian culture warns us that responsibility enslaves. Real freedom, it says, is the relinquishing of responsibility. It says, don't worry, it's okay if you cannot do it. Don't be so hard on yourself if you're unable. It's not your fault for thinking this way. You were victimized. And again, on it goes. And this kind of thinking, this worldly thinking, this is what the pill industry and the psychological world and the classic Christian counseling world count on for the thriving of their enterprises. The truth of the matter is that denying our God-given responsibility is really what enslaves. Oh, there may be the initial sense of relief at the thought that you're not responsible to overcome your problems or win, but eventually you, your relief will be overshadowed by the misconception that you are stuck with this problem for the rest of your life and have only medicine therapy, or coping mechanisms to depend on for help. Believe that satanic propaganda and you will enslave yourself to sin and you will continue to limp on the narrow road. Powerful, liberating truth is that we have been recreated in Christ to be valiant warriors who are responsible to win responsibility in large part is what it means to be made in the image of God. As such, God has outfitted us with state-of-the-art weaponry with which to represent him in our good fight, and we must learn to use it. Any counsel that ignores the implications of what we are in Christ succeeds only in securing for us the status of helpless victim. That new identity comes, by the way, with no responsibility and no freedom, end quote. When I talk about incentives for safe keeping your faith, I mean taking responsibility to apply biblical measures to preserving it, preventative measures to spiritual torpor, from slipping into unproductivity, and even shipwrecking our faith. I would also say that all unbelievers in any church, not just those in the first century congregation here, who are close to being converted, need incentive to press on to embrace Christ. Without it, their hearts are like that rocky soil that prevents the seed of the gospel from taking firm root. We'll see them go from experiencing an initial joy in the Lord to immediately dying away when they're tested. God's means of combating that is the ongoing testimony of faithful Christians around them. Now, with that said, there are four incentives for safekeeping our faith in the midst of battle. Four. Four that we need to, we need to encourage other saints with and unbelievers who are on the verge of, of receiving Christ and ourselves as well when the time calls for it. Here's the first one. Remember your victories in Christ. 
Remember your victories in Christ, verses 32 to 34. The, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress, and partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Remember your victories in Christ. What a great testimony this is. Remarkably, uh, it's remarkable really. The the great conflict of suffering refers here to a protracted period of persecution that is precipitated by faith, lived bravely and unashamedly. Our bold and confident Christian living can actually threaten some people. It can convict them just being around us. And so they hurl insults at us publicly to cause us distress over our position in Christ, like Cranmer received, by the way. More on that in a few moments. Others, like our family or close friends, they may not be threatened um, so much, but they are concerned, and according to them, we've gone off the deep end. So they must jolt us back to reality with the insults and the persecution. Whatever the reasons, persecution can be severe. It obviously was for these Jewish Christians. They apparently suffered persecution just from associating with other persecuted Christians. Now, one of the great tests of true faith is one's willingness to stand for it regardless of the situation. It's in this situation that Paul, Paul's admission, I am not ashamed of the gospel, becomes most meaningful to us. So when persecution continues to heat up for us, and it will, how will you wear your faith? It's a good question. Better ask it and answer it now. How will you display it? In such a cancel culture as ours, we must prepare ourselves to fight well. First century congregation was not fighting well at all. They were not prepared to battle with battle well consistently. And many were showing signs of battle fatigue, if I can press the metaphor a little bit. The writer sensed that they had relaxed their zeal, and many of them now having second thoughts about their Christian direction, having major doubts. <clears throat> All Christians, I know, wrestle with doubts about aspects of their faith from time, to, from time to time. All Christians, young converts, may doubt their salvation. Mature ones sometimes doubt their call in ministry in later years. Others may doubt their particular station in life to which the Lord called them. Still others, if they're being faithful with what God has entrusted to their care, uh, are they really being faithful? whether it's with material possessions or relationships. They wonder. They scratch their head. And I have to say that Satan does some of his best work here, beloved. He accuses us of failing, of being miserable testimonies for Christ, being unworthy servants, or perhaps hypocrites. He assaults us with rogue thoughts that are designed to derail us when we entertain them. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish those thoughts from godly convictions that's the deception, deceptive nature of counterfeit, of course. Whatever the case, however severe the heat is that we catch for our faith, the writer calls us to remember as a worthy strategy for holy war. 
remember. <clears throat> now, the biblical concept of remembrance is a powerful strategy. A lot of Christians don't realize this. They're not familiar with it. It's more than just thinking back on something. It has the idea of reenactment. In fact, the Old Testament festivals were true remembrances of an actual event that they memorialized. Passover, for example. It involves a, a certain meal that the Jews were to eat in a certain manner. Not only to recall how the ancient Israelites, their forefathers, ate the meal in Egypt just before the angel of death came and killed all the Egyptian firstborn, but rather to relive it as much as possible, to get as close to the original event as possible, to share the experience of their ancestors. This is why Israelites for centuries, and still today, by the way, who celebrate that time God provided for their ancestors, who lived in huts in the desert uh, as the Feast of Booths, and will pitch a tent in their backyards and live in them for a week. Remembering is reliving. Remembering is reenacting. We Americans aren't so divorced from this practice when we celebrate our holy days, holidays. <clears throat> Tomorrow, the country will celebrate Memorial Day. That's a time when we remember all those veterans who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Now, we don't just sit in a chair and think about it. There usually are parades in, our, in, in all major cities. Men and women of the armed forces march in the streets, twirling their rifles, blowing the trumpets, singing cadence to keep everyone in proper step. And as far as civilian observers are concerned, this is the closest to a, a real military assembly for a real war that we will ever get. Purpose is for a shared experience. It engenders feelings of nationalism, patriotism, and a healthy pride for our nation. That's what it's designed to do. Now, maybe now you know why American celebra America celebrates the War of Independence on July 4th with fireworks. Because those are the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air that gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And you can sit and read about it, you can think about it, but you want to go and watch the bombs. That's different. It engenders something different. Biblical remembrance is still a powerful tool in the New Testament church. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper next week, we get as close to the Last Supper and as close to the First Christian Communion as possible, experiencing what the Twelve experience with the Lord himself. And this is the best way to pass on our beliefs to one generation, from one generation to the next. In Hebrews 10, the writer tells us essentially to remember and relive their past zeal for Christ. You endured persecution for a for severe of a severe kind, like a true warrior, do you remember? We'll do it again. You can, he says. The fact that you did already proves that. He says, don't be afraid to associate with fellow believers who are currently being persecuted too. Some of them now in prison. You did that already. Remember? You were brothers and sisters to them, encouraging them and even sympathizing with those who are now in prison for their faith. You can do so again. He says, don't fret. 
or ever become unsettled when the empire confiscates your property as a way of punishing you. That happened to you before, remember? You even rejoiced because it reminded you of the fact that a great inheritance is waiting for you in heaven, and no one can take that from you. Do it again. I get fired up just hearing this. Would you be surprised if I told you that many Christians, during their times of spiritual low points, do not use this strategy of remembrance to jumpstart themselves out of it? Maybe you would be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't. If, if you are not surprised, then maybe you would be shocked to know that when they do think back on their past strategies, it actually saddens them because they compare their timid self of the present to their bold selves of the, of the past. And they get even worse. And I have to say, and I've seen this happen many times, someone says, oh, brother in Christ told me in counseling, I remember when I had to control, I had the uh, control of myself, when I was not ashamed to hold my ground and, and speak out against error, when I was bold and willing to jeopardize even my job for the sake of Christ, I guess I lost my nerve. This is such a great example of how Satan can turn biblical principles on their heads and use them against us. Make no mistake, the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp the effectiveness of this strategy. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put it here. And if you're in the spiritual doldrums right now and convinced that you, you're not currently living for Christ in the bold fashion than you, that you used to, then let your past victories in Christ convince you that you can now and get busy. We can think back over the years to those times when we all put our best foot forward for Christ. And we can certainly do so again and continue to put one best foot in front of the other best foot. Remember your past victories in Christ. Number two, remain confident in the faith. You have every right to be. Remain confident in the faith. You have every right to be. Therefore, the writer says, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. As far back as the 1960s, the well-known pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, has gone down in the annals of Christian thought as saying, quote, the only right that a Christian has is to go to hell, end quote. Now, the context in which he said that that he belted that out, actually, spoke against prideful thinking. No Christian has any rights or deserts, and he cannot complain when he's denied them. That was his point. Barnhouse was driving home the truth that we all deserve hell. Never forget that. Now, that makes God's salvation, of course, all the more precious, and it flattens out any hint of sinful pride in our souls for sure. So I understand the spirit behind this statement, and for the most part, he comes pretty close to the truth. But the message from Hebrews 10.35 and other passages is that we Christians do have a right to something else besides hell, and that is to be confident in our Christian walk, because our confidence is rooted in Jesus' promise to us that we have a great reward in heaven. Much of the time... 
that promise eludes us. We know it in theory only. Oh, yeah, it's a great way. We have a great inheritance. Yes, praise the Lord. But if God's truth is living and active, then any promise that he makes to us should impact us as if it is as good as done. Did you hear that? As good as done. Let me say it this way. You live as though you... You live as though you believe with all your heart that Jesus has saved you from God's wrath. You claim to be Christians. But you haven't gone to be with Christ yet. You haven't seen God's glory and majesty yet. You haven't beheld the dazzling streets of gold in heaven or stood in the midst of the heavenly sanctuary or ate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you act as if it were all true because... Your life has changed drastically from what it used to be. You have new interests, new goals, new perspective on life. And if this is the case, then why wouldn't you treat every one of God's promises to you the same way? Do you see how that works? When Christians go around doubting God's will for them in a particular area of their lives, well, maybe we should wonder if their confession is genuine at all. Let me get this straight. You believe God when he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, but you don't believe him when he says, love your wife as Christ loved the church, or pray for those who persecute you, or don't return evil for evil, but return good for evil, or don't marry someone outside the faith, or don't live with someone outside of marriage? These first century Jews were having trouble living Christ to the world. They developed a timidity that's quite foreign to the faith. Maybe usual, but not normal. So the writer says, don't throw away your confidence. In other words, you have no good reason to, but you have every reason to be confident because Christian confidence is attached to certain reward. The reward here is really future. It's in heaven waiting for them and for you. And that's not to say that living the Christian life is not rewarding in and of itself now. Yes, it is. But the promise here is an eternal inheritance that neither moth nor rust nor robber can touch. So the message to us is the same. You've absolutely no right, no right at all, to live a weak, timid, silent, hidden Christian life, a faith-behind-closed-doors kind of life, putting your light under a bushel so as to douse its rays. No, no way. But you have every right to be upfront about your faith, letting your light so shine before the world. So exercise it. Exercise that right. Number three, retain endurance. Retain endurance. Christ is coming soon. Retain endurance. Christ is coming soon. Verses 36 to 38, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The word translated endure here has a very rich etymology in Greek. Let me give you just a, 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 little, a little recap 
In classical Greek, it referred to the brave living, courageous living that defied evil itself. It described a proactive and energetic resistance to hostile power. It refers to the idea of sustaining blows. Go ahead, give it your best shot, is the idea. By the time of the New Testament, it refers in most passages to the steadfast endurance of the Christian under difficulties and tests of the present evil age. Enduring it. Standing up, bearing up under it. That's the idea. Now, Christian endurance is part of the new birth. Make no mistake. The new nature has nothing to do with whether a believer was a courageous person in his pre-converted life. A lot of people make that mistake about a lot of things in the Christian life. And that's because endurance does not emanate from personal bravery, but from faith, and especially from Christian hope. That's why we find this word in eschatological context, context about the end times, where there is the encouragement to endure in light of the return of Christ, who brings with him our reward. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, We always give thanks to God for you making mention of you in all our prayers, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. The perseverance of hope. Do you know what that means? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a paraphrase. Perseverance of hope means a perseverance inspired by hope. Your hope in the return of Christ drives you to keep on, keeping on for the faith. It doesn't matter what's in the way. You push through the morass of all the mess that our culture throws at you because your eye is on the kingdom waiting for the return. As much as endurance comes with the new birth, though, it's not automatic. Uh, obviously, it's not, or else there'd be no need for such commands. Hebrew, in Hebrews, the writer sees that these Jewish Christians lack a good deal of it. They're, they're waning and drifting. They're disassociating themselves from a, a, a bit from the faith so as not to incur persecution. They need endurance. Now, please note two elements of this, in this verse that are very important to our understanding of endurance. One element is what endurance involves. The writer says you need this endurance, quote, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So that means that you receive what is promised once you've finished enduring. And in this case, enduring means doing the will of God. Enduring in this life for Christ means having the temerity, the confidence to live like Jesus, having excessive confidence to obey his will in all circumstances, regardless of the outcome. Let God worry about the outcome. He'll use it for, your glory, for his glory and your good anyway. So enduring means to walk obediently without retreating, without backpedaling, without fear. The second element is what motivates our endurance. Look at verse 37. For yet in a, in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. As we pointed out in 1 Thessalonians 1, endurance is, motive, is motivated, I'm sorry, is the motive rather for Christian um, 
or is motivated by Christian hope. Endurance is motivated by Christian hope of the second coming of Christ and his reward with him. It is an endurance inspired by hope for sure. The idea is that we watch what we're doing with one eye on the work and one eye toward the sky. You'll notice that from God's perspective, a little while here (laughs) is not as immediate as we would like it to be, is it? With God, time is a bit different than it is for us. As we see in chapter 11, there were plenty of Old Testament saints who were living in light of the first coming of Messiah, but they died before he ever came. But I want you to know that didn't lessen one bit their enthusiasm or zeal for living by faith in what they knew would happen, whether it came in their lifetime or not. We then also live by faith in the promise of Jesus coming, his second coming, which may or may not be in our lifetime, But that shouldn't lessen one bit our enthusiasm or zeal to live by faith in what we are certain will occur, right? In one sense, it doesn't matter if Jesus comes before we die. The important thing is, he is coming back. The writer quotes from possibly two passages in in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk in order to support the importance of living by faith and enduring trials until the day of the Lord, where the Lord will judge those who fall away and reward those who endure to the end. So, what have we said so far? Remember, retain, uh, I'm sorry, remember, remain, retain. And now he says, reassure. Reassure yourself of who you are, number four. Verse 39, but we are not among those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul. Amid all the Christian self-help books out there with their many and varied ways of how Christians deal with trials, not a one has ever come across my desk that places any emphasis at all on the importance of reassuring yourself of who you are. That might sound a bit prideful, you know, who am I anyway? That's a good question, though. Let's answer it. You see, these books are all about how to successfully cope. The language of coping betrays, of course, right away these authors and where they're coming from. Well, what's wrong with coping, you might be wondering. Well, nothing if you're interested in just barely hanging on. What do you mean? Well, coping means that you're surviving. Yeah, look it up, you'll see. It means to survive. Now, if you asked me if how I was doing on any particular day, and I said, oh, thanks for asking, surviving, you'd probably ask me, oh, what's wrong? Right? Yes. So if you're coping with trials, then guess what? You're surviving. They haven't gotten the best of you yet. The world believes in coping finds it a positive thing, and even offers all kinds of coping mechanisms to manage your problems, manage your anger, your depression, a nagging spouse, stress of the job. But beloved, coping is the best that the world can do with problems and trials. The New Testament paints a very different picture 
for believers. Christians don't cope. They conquer. They overcome. They put to death or mortify the flesh. You don't want to settle for the world's coping strategy, but the Bible, the Bible's conquering strategy. And here's a large part of the strategy. It's realizing what is true of you, like the fact that you're more than conquerors, right? Isn't that what the Bible calls you? More than conquerors. Some people don't even know that. When it comes to saying no to handling our sin, uh, situation sinfully, Paul teaches the Christians in Romans chapter 6 to consider what is true of them. In verses, first, uh, the first 10 verses, let me say it that way, Paul tells these Christians that they have died with Christ. What else? They have been buried with Christ. What else? They rose with him to newness of life. Now comes verses 11 and 12. So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. You see the relationship between verses 11 and 12. If it is true that you are really this person, then all you need to do is consider that, and you do not have to give sin uh, any uh, any part of your thinking, of your actions at all. That might sound rather unimpressive as a strategy for overcoming temptation, but I assure you that it's quite the opposite. It's dynamic. This is a dynamic, revolutionary principle. Consider what is true of you. In addition to the fact that it comes right from the mouth of God, it communicates a fundamental truth in spiritual warfare. In fact, in any warfare, or fight. And that is winning or losing a fight is all done first in the mind. First in the mind. If anyone wins a battle, it's because he wins it first in the mind. He's confident that he will win before he engages in battle. Then he comes out victorious. Now, there's nothing superstitious about this, okay? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that by simply believing that you can win a fight, you automatically can. No. But if you have the slightest doubt about your own abilities and whether you can win, you will surely lose. No question. <clears throat> In the Christian's case, it happens to be true that they can win over temptation by considering what is true of them. Theoretically, we're dead to sin. We don't have to give ourselves to it anymore. So it makes absolute sense that Paul should tell Christians to consider what is true of them so that they can then act in a way that, isn't, that is consistent with who they are. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You don't have to give in to sin anymore. You can say no to it. So say no and walk away. The writer of the Hebrews, in like fashion, tells those Christians in this church who seem to be fearing man and losing ground that Christ already won for them to consider what is true of them. He says, we are not among those 
who shrink back to destruction. Rather, we are those who have faith for the safekeeping of our soul. Never forget that. Now go and be zealous for Christ. That's the idea here, beloved. I mentioned the tragic end of Thomas Cranmer. He experienced betrayal, revenge, and ultimately a cruel execution. If you ever read his story, you'll see. But in many ways, it was a triumph, and it remains one of the greatest true life accounts in church history that we can look to when we need to bolster our confidence. You say, really? How? Well, Cranmore may have recanted, but he was no apostate. I need to tell you the rest of the story. On the day of his execution, he recanted his recantation. That's right. He was a true believer who feared man, sadly, and let that fear sidetrack him for a brief moment. For a brief moment. He is one such Christian who may have seemed to go the way of the apostate, but he didn't end up there. Our passage would have done Cranmore a world of good at the time of his recanting. Maybe it it did eventually because he was well-versed in the Bible. And of all the great things that he sacrificed for the Reformation, perhaps the greatest of all, was his own hand. You say, what? Yes, his own hand. As the account goes, once Cranmer shook himself out of his spiritual stupor, he boldly proclaimed the truth to the townspeople on the day that he was supposed to claim allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church. Here is a bit of that account. Quote, uh, Then was an iron chain tied about Cranmer. Oh, sorry. Let me give you the one before this. Here we go. Uh, Cranmer says, um, And now I come to the great thing, this is before the crowd, which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to truth. He's talking about a document that they put together and made him sign for a recantation, which I now renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be. And that is all such bills and papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation wherein I have written many such things untrue as for as much as my hand offended writing contrary to my heart my hand shall first be punished therefore for for may i come to the fire it shall be first burned with that they rushed cranmore to the pyre and here's what he said next quote Then was an iron chain tied about Cranmer when they perceived him to be more steadfast than 
that he could be moved from his sentence, they commanded the fire to be set unto him. And when the wood was kindled, and the fire began to burn near him, stretching out his arm, he put his right hand into the flame, which he held so steadfast and immovable, saving that once with the same hand he wiped his face, that all men might see this hand burned before his body was touched. His body abide and the burning with such steadfastness that he seemed to move no more than the stake to which he was bound, his eyes lifted up to heaven. And he repeated, quote, his unworthy right hand, so long as his voice would suffer him, and using often the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit in the greatest of the flame, he gave up the ghost, end quote. You see that Cramer no doubt recalled his former victories in Christ. He was the author of the Common Book of Prayer. He was the author of the 39 Articles of Faith for the English Reformation, all before this happened, obviously. He pulled himself together in this most grievous trial, and he behaved as the warrior that he was in Christ, that we all are. He died a martyr's death, a high honor for any Christian. And he went down in church history as the leader of the English Reformation. Oh, our Father, we are so grateful for